BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello there, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here with Judging Freedom. Today is Wednesday, April 13, 2022. It's about 1.30 in the afternoon on the East Coast of the United States. My guest is a man uh, who is the personification of, of personal courage and whose work I've admired for many years, Scott Ritter. Scott is a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, former UN weapons inspector, and current past, present, and future teller of the truth when he discovers that mm, somehow it's different from what the government has been telling us. Scott, it's a pleasure. Welcome to my podcast, Judging Freedom. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. I just want to go back in your history a little bit. I really want to talk about Ukraine. But before we get there, did Saddam Hussein have weapons of uh, mass destruction of the nature and capacity as uh, stated by the Bush administration sufficient to justify the invasion of Iraq? Well, he did at one time uh, when the United Nations weapons inspection process was formed back in 1991. Uh, Saddam Hussein had considerable chemical weapons, uh, biological weapons. He had a, a nuclear weapons program that was six months away from possibly having a nuclear device. Um, and he had a long range ballistic missile program that had not only fired missiles against Israel and the Gulf Arab states during the Gulf War, but was being um, research was being done to create a missile that could carry um, a, a nuclear warhead. So this these, this was a real threat. And the other thing is that Saddam lied about it uh, initially, um, underdeclared his missiles, underdeclared his chemicals, denied having biological and, and nuclear weapons capability. Uh, I was brought in um, a, you know, a couple months after the creation of this unit uh, when the UN was confronted by these lies. I'm an intelligence officer. I'm not a chemist, a biologist, a nuclear physicist, or a rocket scientist. My job is to uh, collect information uh, and then uh, assess it and then package it so it can be used to uh, carry out inspections. And for seven years, we did this very difficult job. Uh, by the time we completed, we could account for about 90 to 95% of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. And we could mitigate against the concern of the uh, unaccounted for material by saying, hey, we were monitoring the totality of their industrial infrastructure. They weren't producing anything new. And the stuff that we couldn't account for uh, was probably blown up and we just can't, we, we can't find the bodies. Uh, but even if it was there hidden, um, it's dated. Uh, chemical weapons have a lifetime. Biological agents uh, degrade over time. Uh, we know we didn't have a nuclear capability. And we could account for all of his missiles. So in 1998, when I left the job, Iraq posed no threat to the international community worthy of, uh, of war. And that, that held true in March of 2003 when the Bush administration made the decision to send American troops over the border in what I believe and other people believe was an um, illegal war of aggression. And what was the uh, reaction of your superiors when you, when you told them that he has nothing or what he has is not usable? Well, I mean, you know, I, I started recognizing some of this early on in, in uh, as early as 1993. Uh, I had a meeting with uh, senior CIA officials in the office of uh, then director of the CIA, James Wolseley, 
where I briefed them that we could account for all of Iraq's ballistic missile capability. That was a message the United States did not want to hear. Um, immediately, the CIA went and told the U.S. Senate that there were 200 missiles unaccounted for. They just made that number up. And later, when we confronted them and did some investigations to disprove them, they came back and said, well, that number is 12 to 20, and it will never change no matter what you do. That's a direct quote. It will never change no matter what you do, which meant that our work was was useless because we weren't there to disarm Iraq. We were there to facilitate um, the, the, the impression that Iraq was non-compliant, therefore to justify the retention of economic sanctions that would destabilize Saddam so the United States could carry out its ultimate objective of regime change. And, and you know, there's a variety of reasons as to why George Bush wanted regime change. Probably uh, the most absurd and demeaning for him is his infamous quote that, quote, Saddam tried to kill my daddy. My dad. yeah. Close quote. We, we all know that. He never really was uh, was called to uh, account for it. Uh, but people like you were disregarded by the government because you told the truth as you perceived it to be, and they didn't want to hear it. No, the truth was the enemy. The fact is, if, if we weapons inspectors succeed in our job of disarming Iraq, uh, the United States would not have been able to implement its policy of, uh, of regime change. And so uh, the truth became the enemy, and those who were seeking to tell the truth um, you know, we're also hunted down. Well, I'll just give you a brief war story. When I resigned in August of 1998, uh, the day I was going to submit my letter of resignation, I was summoned by the CIA into the U.S. mission in New York, where um, I, I was put on the phone with a senior member of the National Security Council who begged me to stay. Basically, he said, if you leave, you'll destroy the, the inspection process. And I said, well, the inspection process doesn't work unless you guys support us. Uh, you got to let us finish the job, do the, you know, do our job. And they wouldn't. So I, I hung up and I said, I'm going to resign. The CIA guy looked at me, he said, you know, once you submit that letter of resignation, the FBI is going to, and he used an expletive and indicated a part of my body. Um, and I went, so be it. That's that's just the price you have to pay. I mean, that what American shies away from telling the truth? I mean, literally, you can't. Um, and so I, I, I did what I did and I paid the price that I paid and so be it. Here we are today. And so uh, George W. Bush and... Uh then Secretary of State Colin Powell and all the people around them engaged in a colossal act of deception in order to persuade the American public that it was necessary uh, to enhance the national security of the United States of America, not the personal grievances of George W. Bush, in order to support the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Fair to say? you 100% correct. All right. Fast forward. I'm, I'm establishing this background. It's a fascinating history uh, Scott, I could talk to you about it, um, uh, you know, all afternoon. I just want to establish your your bona fides in this area. I want to fast forward now uh, to today. If Joe Biden called you up this afternoon and said, uh, Scott, what would you advise me to do with respect to the war between Russia and the Ukraine? As, as unusual as it would be for you to expect that phone call from him, what would you tell him? Well, I would tell him, first of all, the war has to end today. Um, because the, every day this goes on, the innocent people of Ukraine are suffering, and dying, and being in, evicted from their homes in a losing cause. That there's no there's no set of circumstances you can imagine uh, that will have Ukraine prevailing in this war. Russia is going to win this war and win this war decisively. It's better to recognize that now and mitigate the damage that has been done and is being done to the Ukrainian people. The other thing is it gives you an opportunity to have some sort of negotiating leverage at uh, what's going to happen after the war, which is a, a dialogue between Russia and NATO over what the future 
uh, security framework of, of, of Europe's going to look like. It's not going to look like what Joe Biden thinks it's going to look like. Russia is serious. Putin doesn't bluff. And I'm not saying that we should kowtow to him, bow low to him, but we have to recognize the reality of, of what Russia is asking for, which is for NATO to go back to its 1997 um, you know, uh, borders. Uh, that doesn't mean that NATO, nations that join NATO after that leave NATO. It just means that you can't have uh, non-national troops. If you're in Poland, you can't have German troops in Poland, American troops in Poland. If you're in the Baltics, you can't have French and German troops. Uh, they all have to go home and you have to get rid of the ballistic missile uh, facilities that you put in Poland and Romania, and you have to create a buffer of stability between NATO and Russia. Russia doesn't trust NATO anymore. NATO lied about expansion. And so Russia views NATO as an existential threat. And unless this threat is dealt with diplomatically, Russia has shown a willingness to use what he calls the military technical option to resolve the issue in its favor. Russia is playing to win. They're not playing to lose. So, um, a fellow that reminds me a lot of you, Colonel Douglas McGregor, you may know him on this uh, program, uh, articulated the view that it is the goal of the globalists and the nationalists and the American CIA and the American State Department, their colleagues throughout uh, the government and their, their colleagues uh, in NATO uh, to degrade Russia or to remove uh, Putin from being in power. I thought, well, you know, Doug, you're very courageous. You're like Scott Ritter. You say what you think. Nobody else is saying that. A week later, the president of the United States, in the middle of a speech that was watched all around the world, said effectively the same thing. Yep. And last Sunday, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security uh, advisor, said, yes, we do a hope for a degraded Russia, which either means militarily degraded, economically degraded, or politically degraded, some sort of a democracy in Russia uh, without Vladimir Putin. With all of that as background, what do you say is the true goal of the State Department and its collaborators in Europe with respect to this proxy war we're fighting in Ukraine? Ukraine has always been viewed as the uh, soft underbelly towards Russia, that if you could take Ukraine away from the Russian sphere of influence, that you would so destabilize Russia, forcing it into uh, security arrangements it couldn't afford. Um, you would destroy it economically by denying it access to Ukrainian resources that would be diverted to the European uh, Union, European community, et cetera, that uh, this would create um, economic distress and um, you know, bring with it you know, public unrest that would achieve the ultimate objective, which is to remove Vladimir Putin from power. This has been the stated policy of the United States since 2009. They can deny it, but if you remember the Great Reset, uh, uh, of the Obama administration, the, the embarrassing misspelled red button word. Um, right. that, was policy of, that was a policy of regime change. The United States was committing to keeping Dmitry Medvedev in as president and permanently removing Vladimir Putin from any prospect of being president. Joe Biden traveled to Moscow in March of 2011 and said that to a group of Russian opposition leaders. He said, Vladimir Putin shouldn't run for re-election because it will turn out bad for him and Russia. That's regime change. It doesn't mean that you're invading. It means you're trying to remove uh, a legitimate uh, public official from consideration from office. And it's been the goal of the United States ever since that time, goal of the United States today. But I will tell you this, Vladimir Putin's been uh, in charge of Russia during five presidencies. He'll be in charge uh, after Biden. Uh, the, the regime change is going to take place here at home. The Biden administration will not survive Vladimir Putin. How... Um how close is this proxy war 
to World War III. I mean, suppose some Russian tank commander misreads his GPS, either intentionally or, or negligently, uh, and, and directs a, a couple dozen tanks to fire their projectiles uh, over the border into Poland, and they destroy American equipment there ready to be shipped to Ukraine, and they kill American and Polish soldiers. What the hell happens? I, I think what happens is the Russians recognize they made a mistake um, and they will write out any limited retaliation by the United States and the both sides will disconnect because nobody wants World War III. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that's a danger. First of all, any large-scale combat, let's just be frank, NATO is incapable of waging the kind of combat today that Russia is waging in Ukraine. This is large-scale combined arms warfare of the sort that we used to fight back in the 1980s uh, when I was in the Marine Corps. I trained for it. And we, the United States forgot how to fight it after 20 years of running around the deserts of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. We don't know how to do it. We're not trained to do it. We're not equipped to do it. Um, and, and, and we don't have the resources to do it. Neither does NATO. That's why you see the panic right now. The talk of reconstituting forces, of pushing forces forward. There's going to be a NATO summit in June in Madrid where they're going to talk about all this. But right. the reality is, who's going to pay for it? Who's going to host it? Who's going to do it? Nobody has these answers. And so this is the real risk. NATO is, you know, talking the talk, but it's highly unlikely they are able to walk the walk when it comes to confronting Russia militarily in Europe today. Did you, um, in, in collaboration with your friends in the intelligence community, uh, conduct some sort of uh, an investigation uh, of what allegedly happened at uh, Buka uh, last week, where the American public was told through government sources and media uh, that civilians were tied and hogtied and tortured uh, and executed. I didn't collaborate with anybody in the intelligence community. Um, nowadays, um, the people that I know from the intelligence community have uh, bought lock, stock, and barrel into the uh, into the government uh, position that Ukraine is um, the, the greatest nation in Europe, and so I pretty much stand alone. But I did investigate the open, you know, the the available information and you know, open source information. And what did you, and, what did you find, Scott? What I found is that without exception, without exception, all of the data points to the Ukrainian National Police carrying out a cleansing operation on April 1st that targeted pro-Russian collaborators and what they called Russian um, saboteurs. And when we say cleansing operation, it means killing them. There's a video where a member of this National Police Unit asked permission to shoot people who aren't wearing the blue armband, and he was given permission to fire. Well, let me get this, let me get this, this is the Ukrainian National Police murdering Ukrainians who are perceived to be insufficiently pro-Ukraine. Correct. These are these are Ukrainians who were wearing the white armband that signifies either neutrality or pro-Russian sympathies. They were carrying the green Russian army um, dry ration packs that the Russians had handed out to uh, the civilians. Uh, as a humanitarian gesture, and they were gunned down in the streets as they were moving in a direction towards uh, the Russian lines. So they were killed by the Ukrainian National Police. Now, the Ukrainians will claim that uh, this didn't happen. Indeed, the New York Times put out a satellite photograph that says, no, no, these bodies were there on March 19th. Um, I don't want to get too graphic on your show, but I've been around dead bodies. And bodies that have, were killed on March 19th, left out in uh, damp weather in temperatures of 40, 50, 60 degrees, will not present themselves if they're presented in those photographs. It'll be something quite different. Any police uh, forensic investigator knows exactly what I'm talking about. The bloating, double the size, black face, burst bodies, putrid liquid. 
That's what you'll see 14 days after being killed and left outside unattended. That's not what we saw there. So, so are you're, you're, telling, telling us, you're telling us that what we saw was staged, um, concocted by the Ukrainians, bought and sold and accepted by the American military and the American media. Well, I'm not saying it's staged. What happened was murder. The Ukrainian National Police went through Bucha and murdered people, murdered them, shot them down the streets. Some of these people had their hands tied behind their back and were shot in the back execution style. This was not a staged event. What happened is Ukrainians realized that they had a PR problem, and so they shifted the narrative, and that narrative was bought by the U.S. Or I'm not going to say bought. It was just parroted. The U.S. knows who killed them. Trust me. The U.S. has the satellite photographs. The U.S. knows exactly what happened. But the U.S. isn't isn't in the business of telling the truth. They're in the business of promulgating Ukrainian lies. And this this lie was to create a narrative of Russia as a genocidal state trying to uh, massacre innocent Ukrainian civilians. That's not what happened. The evidence is clear. If we took this trial today, Judge, I can guarantee you I'd be able to make a very strong circumstantial case that this crime was committed by the Ukrainian National Police and they would have nothing to defend with. How, do, how does this end? I mean, if we just keep shipping billions in military uh, equipment there and Putin just keeps sending, you know, thousands more conscripts and, and generals of, of great military experience, we call him a butcher, but he certainly knows how to command troops. How does this end? Well, first of all, I, I take umbrage at the notion that they're sending thousands of conscripts. Again, that's a uh, that's a Western narrative designed to create an impression inside Russia of impending Russian military defeat. Let me make this clear. Russia is winning this war and winning this war decisively and winning this war on a timeline dictated by Russia. Who just gave a speech the other night where he said our troops were not worried about uh, the West timeline. We are carrying out what he called a very literal war. That means by the book, by the numbers designed to reduce Russian casualties and inflict maximum casualties on Ukrainians. Uh, just yesterday, we had a thousand Ukrainian Marines surrender. Prior to that, it was 200, 200. In the days to come, you're going to see 5,000, 10,000 Ukrainian troops surrender at a time because they're caught up in a cauldron. They can't escape. Their choice is to surrender or die. That's the reality of the war. This war is about to end decisively in favor of Russia. And the West is going to have to deal with that reality. And Putin said one other thing, too. There will be no negotiated settlement. Zelensky can sit there and talk to the Western media all he wants about the various points he's going to bring up and, 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 and the issues and concerns of Ukraine. It doesn't matter. It will be unconditional surrender dictated by the Russians to the Ukrainians. That's the reality. That's what's going to happen. And there's nothing the West can do to change it. All these weapons that are being sent in are either being destroyed shortly after they arrive or as soon as they arrive in the hands of the Ukrainian troops, those troops are killed and targeted by the Russians who control the skies, control the firepower, and control the maneuver. They're winning this war. I, I have not seen or heard uh, as clear and precise a description of what's happening there uh, as, as you just gave us. Uh, you, you are a great man for your personal courage and, and fidelity to the truth. Just switching gears before I let you go, because we've all had problems with Twitter. What have they <laughs> done? What have they done to you now? Well, I'm permanently banned. I, um, I, I was banned. Was, I didn't know it was permanent. I thought you were on some sort of a suspension and they didn't tell you why. 
Well, no, they 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 suspended me once uh, last week, and they claimed it was a, a tweet that I, I wrote about Bucha about the. Uh, I, I was saying that it was done by the Ukrainian National Police. They then lifted that suspension only to suspend me a few days later about a, a tweet, tweet I actually wrote before the first tweet, again about Bucha. Uh, this time they notified me this morning that uh, my appeal was denied and it's a permanent ban because I am promoting abusive and uh, harmful uh, rhetoric. Uh, basically, it's because I refuse to kowtow to the official narrative and I'm... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with the facts, not the fiction that Twitter wants. So I'm done with Twitter. I mean, I, I'm sorry about it. I enjoyed it. It was a it was a nice forum. It was a great place to have informed debate, discussion and dialogue, which I think is the cornerstone of democracy. But I've been shut down, whether it's official violation of First Amendment rights or just outright censorship. The bottom line is my voice is no longer going to be heard on Twitter. I think in the next edition of Webster's Unabridged, Next to the phrase personal courage would be one of those little postage stamp pictures of Scott Ritter. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you'll come back, my friend. Anytime, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, one little uh, announcement to everybody watching us now. Uh, Congressman Ron Paul will be here on Tuesday, April 19th at 1245 in the afternoon. He was scheduled for yesterday. We had a technical difficulty. It's been fixed. He'll be with us next week, Tuesday, 1245 p.m. Eastern. Scott Ritter, what a pleasure. Thank you. Judge Napolitano for judging freedom.